Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders, everyone. Howdy. We are joined tonight by our, our outstanding co-host, uh, Dr. Krista Chumanchu, an incredible medical student producer, Angela Zhang. Say hey, Angela. Hey, y'all. We are so excited tonight. We had a outstanding guest, Dr. Sarah Vincent, who discussed ADHD and all of the deep structural components that come with the diagnosis of ADHD. It was a wonderful episode. I learned a ton. It was challenging. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But first, before we get into some of the content, Chris, I forgot. What do we, what do, we do on the show? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And, and Angela, can you tell us a little bit about, about Dr. Vincent and who she is? Yeah, so we're really excited about our guest today. We talked to Dr. Sarah Vinson. So Sarah Y. Vinson is a physician who specializes in adult, child, and adolescent, and forensic psychiatry. She completed medical school at the University of Florida and trained in general psychiatry at Cambridge Health Alliance with Harvard Medical School. She then returned to the South to complete fellowships in both child and adolescent and forensic psychiatry at Emory University School of Medicine. In addition to providing mental health care services, such as psychotherapy, consultation, and psychopharmacology through her private practice, Dr. Vincent is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Today, she teaches us about how to responsibly diagnose ADHD, first-line treatments based on how old your patient is, and why race and racism are important to consider. Okay, let's get to it, guys. Did you guys see that scroll outside my window? No. No, I was really focused on my script. <laughs> Dr. Vincent, thank you so much for coming to the show. We're very excited to have you. I am extremely excited about this topic because ADHD is something that I uh, struggle with a lot. And so I'm Justin Burke. We're the Cribsiders. We're here with our wonderful producer, Angela Zane. Angela, you want to say hello? Hi. <laughs> All right. We're excited to have you. And so, Dr. Vincent, one question. We always try to be informal in the show, and so we'd like to ask permission. But for informality's sake, are you okay if we call you Sarah for the show? Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. We want to get to know you. We want our, our show guests, audience to get to know you. Can you describe yourself a little bit to us so that we know who is Dr. Sarah Benson? Sure. So when I went to medical school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician, but then I fell in love with psychiatry. So naturally, I became a child psychiatrist and have ended up doing integrated care as well. So I'm sort of a pediatrician groupie, and I am an associate clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at Morehouse School of Medicine. So my first question is the one I almost always ask is, do you have a favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Man, a favorite failure. I would say for me, it was actually that first year of medical school because it was such a huge adjustment for me in terms of workload and learning how to study and all of those things. And it was really a gut check for me about how badly I wanted to be a physician. And so 
feeling as if that was at risk reinforced to me how important it was that I pursue this work. And, you know, things have gone pretty well since then, but it's humbling and it gives me a certain perspective. And it also, I think, enables me to encourage students in a way that I wouldn't if I hadn't had that experience. So I'm grateful for that and for the, you know, first year medical students, it gets better. My first anatomy test was one of the most humbling experiences (laughs) in the entire academic career. And I feel you. Angela, you want to do a question? Sure. I really love this question uh, because I'm always looking for new recommendations. What is a book that every physician should read? Hmm. So given some of the things we're contending with in society today, not that they're new in society, but that we're paying more attention to, I do think How to Be an Anti-Racist is an important book because a lot of well-intentioned people think, well, if I'm not a bad person, if I'm not mistreating people, then I'm not part of the problem. And what I love about how this book presents it is that if we just perpetuate the status quo, those actions are actually supporting a racist system, which I know is a challenging thought for people. But I think that after reading it, you'll understand why the author frames it that way. And as physicians, we have so much authority and power and privilege I really do believe that if we got this right or got this closer to right, it could mean a lot for how our society as a whole operates. I love it. I think that's something we're working on individually, but also as an organization and podcast. And I appreciate you saying that. Why don't we, uh, let's jump into some content. Yeah, Yeah. we should go with the first case. Let's do it. Angela, hit it. All right. So you're seeing a new patient, Jordan. She's six years old and her family just moved to the city and has needed a new PCP. Her dad is with her and is worried that Jordan has trouble paying attention and can't sit still. He says, I'm worried she has ADHD. I love this case, Angela, because I feel like this happens in clinic all the time where mom just says, I'm worried about ADHD. They're having trouble at home or at school. Sarah, can you kind of walk us through how should we be approaching this question? How should we be approaching uh, a patient where there's some concern from parent or physician about ADHD? So something that's really important with ADHD, because the symptoms are so nonspecific, is to really be curious about what else could be causing these issues. So something I say all the time is that all that fidgets is not ADHD. So children who haven't gotten enough sleep may be uh, fidgety because they're trying to stay up. Kids who are anxious fidget because they're anxious. Kids with PTSD may be hypervigilant, and that may show up as as fidgeting too. And so there are a lot of different mental health problems in children that have ADHD-ish symptoms as their endpoints. And so even though ADHD is sort of the less stigmatizing diagnosis, the one we're often most comfortable making, the one we're most comfortable medicating, it doesn't always uh, explain the picture in the best way for a given child. So what would be your approach then to start teasing this out when, with, say, the six-year-old that's, that's presenting to us now? So one of the things that's really helpful is timeline. So, you know, if she suddenly developed ADHD symptoms after she was taken into defects custody and been removed from her family of origin for the first time in her life, then that might you know, raise some flags about, you know, is this trauma or is this an adjustment issue? And so timeline is is helpful because with ADHD, often even if it wasn't significantly impairing their entire life, the parent can sort of look back and be like, yeah, compared to their brother, they did this or they did that. Whereas uh, depression tends to be more episodic. Trauma, you can sort of time to some traumatic event that happened in the child's life. So timeline is really useful. You know, the other thing that's 
really important to do is a good psychiatric review of symptoms. So being sure to ask about things like anxiety and depression, and it may be that even if you have comorbidities, the ADHD isn't actually the big issue. Now, going back to to what you're saying about timeline, is there a, a typical age when you start seeing symptoms that you might associate with ADHD? Is there is there a minimal age that you can diagnose ADHD or can it start at any time? So you can see it early. And I've even had some moms, and you know, this may be retrospective bias, but I've had some moms that say he was more active in the womb. Right? <laughs> and so if it's hyperactivity, that's a lot easier to see early. If it's inattention, then that's harder to see early because we don't actually start asking people to pay attention to things until later in life, right? So you get far enough in grade school that the deficit of that attention, you know, becomes a problem. So the hyperactivity, a lot of times the parents will tell you they started to see things really early, uh, whereas inattention may take longer to, to manifest or to become problematic. So you sort of went through um, a couple of different ways you're categorizing ADHD. You're talking about sort of inattentiveness as well as hyperactivity. Can you go into a little more detail on these types of categories and are there, are there combined versions as well? Sure. So what we've realized is that these categories we were using didn't actually make a whole lot of sense because over time, the same person would have their category change. So, you know, years and years ago, we thought, oh, people grow out of ADHD. It's a childhood issue. They become adults and they magically don't have it anymore. And what we've realized is that they're actually just not as hyperactive, but they continue to be inattentive and continue to have significant impairments functionally because of those ADHD symptoms. And so what we see in a lot of cases is that the hyperactivity may wane over time or as an adult or as a teenager, they may find more socially acceptable ways to channel that hyperactivity, but the inattention stays around and the inattention becomes the issue that's more problematic for them. So we've moved away in a, in a lot of ways from saying this person has this type or that type and really just thinking about ADHD and, and what's the most significant presentation for them at that time, understanding that over time that can change. And so let's say we have a patient who, let's say they're six or they're 10, and we have a history that seems very significant for ADHD. They're having hyperactivity. They're having trouble in school and at home paying attention. What are our next steps for making the diagnosis? I feel like my training was always diagnosed via Vanderbilt forms. And I think that that seems maybe a common practice, but there's also neuropsychological testing. There's also, I think, some children in front of you that you feel pretty strongly based on the history that you have a high likelihood of the diagnosis. Can you walk us through how we give a patient, give a child the diagnosis of ADHD, knowing that we want to be careful about the potential risks of labeling and making sure that we're, we're making the accurate diagnosis? Absolutely. So, you know, I see the, the diagnosis by Vanderbilt problem for sure. And, you know, what the Vanderbilt tells you is that this child has symptoms of ADHD. It doesn't tell you that they have ADHD and it doesn't tell you that maybe they have these symptoms because of PTSD or substance use or substance withdrawal or learning disabilities. And so take that questionnaire for what it's worth, but also sort of put it in the context of that child, that child's life and that child's other symptoms. And that's a really, really important thing to do. You know, the big thing is that you want to document that there are symptoms and that there is there are problems in multiple settings. It's often easier for us to default to doing that with the Vanderbilt because it's hard to get a teacher on the phone during the small window of time you have with the kid. But you can still glean information about functional problems from the parent, from the child during your interview. So even if you can't get the teacher, you can still get information 
that lets you know they do indeed have a functional impairment in the school setting, even if you can't talk to the teacher themselves. Another thing that I would say is really important in thinking about the diagnosis is understanding uh, what it means to the family to have that diagnosis. You know, do they see it as a label? Do they see it as something that helps explain what's going on? And, And seeing what it means to them, you know, if their child has ADHD or if their child does not. And and what I've seen sometimes as a psychiatrist is that parents might rather their child have an ADHD diagnosis than a PTSD diagnosis or a depression diagnosis. And so, you know, having that conversation as well, because it can be tricky uh, when you're dealing with stigma and mental health issues. And the reality is there are certain things that are, you know, even more highly stigmatized than others. And I think we've touched on this a little bit, but it seems like from what you're saying, there are certain groups that maybe are more likely to have ADHD or more likely to have ADHD symptoms. Is that right? Is there a socioeconomic component? Is there a gender component? Are there other things that put a patient at risk for being diagnosed with ADHD? So there can be a difference between who's diagnosed and who has it, which is something that we're trying to get better at as a field. But you know, I, I call ADHD the gateway mental health diagnosis for kids. When I look back at charts, even as a forensic psychiatrist looking at like adults or, or teenagers that are in trouble with the law, almost everybody starts off with an ADHD diagnosis. And then it sort of morphs into these other things as, as things become more uh, problematic or people learn more about the child. And so I, I think there's a way that it, from what I've observed, becomes a marker of there's some problem. And that's the diagnosis we are most comfortable fixing to the problem initially while we try to figure other things out. And it's also the one that we feel most comfortable treating. And this is just Sarah talking. Like I can't give you a, you know, a peer reviewed article that, that says that, but this is just my observation. And so what we have with ADHD is something that is simultaneously underdiagnosed because you have people who have it, who uh, may be less hyperactive. So it's not as obvious or who don't have access to mental health care or even to a pediatrician or a family medicine doctor who could diagnose it for them. So they have it, but they don't have the person to do the evaluation and to, and to give them that. Or they don't have a family structure that gives them an adult who's responsible, who makes an appointment for them and takes them to it, right? So you have people who just can't access the system to have the diagnosis. But then you also have a situation where a lot of the people who do access the system, this becomes the diagnosis that they start with whether it's completely accurate or not. And part of that is because we get the Vanderbilt and it's all lit up and we say, oh, ADHD, here's some methylphenidate. And so it's a both and, which, which makes it a bit tricky. And it's important to, to point out too that you do see comorbidity with ADHD. So it's not an either or, especially with girls, you see a lot of depression and anxiety that goes along with ADHD too. Let's say that I have a patient, you know, and I'm doing my well-child visit and I have my 20 minutes and it's a 12-year-old that is struggling, and they certainly have factors at home that make things difficult for them, that they have perhaps PTHD, they have oppositional defiant disorder, or at least they're having trouble in school and having trouble interacting with other people in the school. To tease that out, what can I do as a primary care doctor? I realize this is a big question of addressing some of the major societal issues that cause these symptoms, but is it, is it getting, should I be getting to my, my patients to psychiatrists earlier? Should I be getting social work involved much earlier? Are there things that I can do as a primary care doctor other than send them home with Vanderbilt forms? 
Sure. So if you know that there's significant trauma or uh, family adversity, that's a child that can benefit from therapy either way. So whether they get to a psychiatrist or not, you want that child to have more psychosocial supports in place. And when you look at the MTA study, you know, a lot of times the headline is, well, meds and meds and therapy looked about the same in terms of how people did. But when you look at the subset of people who had a lot of socioeconomic or psychosocial challenges, that group did better with both. So you are never going to go wrong in referring a child who has challenging psychosocial circumstances or uh, limited bandwidth in their parents to meet them where they need to be met emotionally to therapy. So I would say always default to sending them then there if you pick up on those things. You know, that said, you can have PTSD and ADHD at the same time. And this is where talking to the child is really helpful. So, you know, there's one young girl I saw in clinic and, you know, there's concern about ADHD and concern about her trauma. And I was like, well, what are you thinking about in class when you can't focus on your schoolwork? And she said, I miss my dad. He's in prison. Right. So so this is like grief trauma. This isn't Timmy's tapping his pencil and I get distracted by the tapping, which we approach in a different way than if this is just straight ADHD. So asking the child about where is it that your mind goes, seeing if they're having flashbacks in class, seeing if it's that they just can't understand the content and that that's the problem. So really asking them sort of what's happening in that moment when they're not attending. Stepping back a little bit to make the diagnosis of ADHD in a child, as opposed to a child that is struggling with uh, the broad sphere of discipline. How can we decipher that this is true hyperactivity or inattentiveness due to, again, this diagnosis of ADHD, as opposed to having trouble balancing the, the, the social stressors at home? Sure. So, you know, one of the things I love about kids is that they can be quite honest sometimes. So, you know, if, if they don't think, if, if you're talking to them about their behavior, and, and I've even asked some of them, you know, if you had more time to think about that, would you still have cursed that teacher out? And sometimes they say, yeah, because they deserved it because da 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 So this is not an impulsive thing. If they have more time, it wouldn't matter. This is a like relational dynamic issue between that child and the teacher. So sometimes it sort of gets back to, you know, is there remorse? Do they think it's problematic? Is that something that was impulsive? Is it something that's part of a bigger issue? And then you should also see ADHD symptoms in other ways too. So, you know, misplacing things, having trouble keeping up with things, losing uh, track of what's going on. So it shouldn't only be when they're at grandma's house that they have ADHD symptoms. There should be some evidence of them in other places. They may not be as impairing in other places, but there should be some some evidence of them other places too. And so I guess my question is, you know, you talked about a bit about misdiagnoses and I'm wondering like, aside from the fact that you could be treating this other thing that's underlying, why does it matter to get it right? You know, what are the harms of misdiagnosing, especially for a patient's when they leave the clinic? Like, are there effects of having that label of ADHD in the education system or in the justice system or, or other parts of their life? Sure. And so one of the things that happens with misdiagnosis is if you have the wrong diagnosis, they get the wrong treatment. So I have had multiple, uh, especially Black boys with anxiety that were misdiagnosed with ADHD given stimulants and their anxiety got worse because you know, now they can focus better on the things they're worried about and the, the underlying issue isn't being addressed. So, you know, by not getting it right, we could actually do harm. And we're also doing harm in that this problem that is impairing their function is being allowed to continue and being allowed to continue disrupting their academic prog- 
progress, their social development, their interactions with their family and their friends and those sorts of things. And so, you know, one of the things that I often talk to parents about is, you know, there's the risk of treatment, but there's also the risk of not treatment, right? The risk of allowing this disease or this disorder to go unaddressed. And so when we don't get it right, we're sending families down a wrong path, but we're also leaving that issue to continue negatively impacting the child. Now, so say you do all this work, you, you go through, do a thorough history, and you maybe do some Vanderbilt, and it's helping you have a better understanding of all the symptoms. And after some good digging, you decide that the patient probably does have ADHD. How, how do you describe this to, to this patient's parents if they don't really understand the diagnosis? So one of the things that I've noticed with parents is that they've seen the symptoms, they just didn't know how to categorize them or what to make of them, right? And so it's not news to them when you tell them, oh, your child does this, this, and this. They're like, yeah, I know, they've been doing, you know. And so it's helping them understand why that's the case, and also helping them understand that this isn't a volitional you know, thing, that their child's brain actually works differently. And so it's harder for them um, to do some of these things that are, are being asked of them. Thinking things through is harder. Paying attention to things that are boring or hard, is harder. And that things that look oppositional can, in fact, be due to attention because it's hard to follow an order if you don't remember what the order was. And so sort of reframing things, especially if there's been concerns about oppositionality, so that they understand, you know, this isn't a decision on the child's part to ignore them. Their brain just isn't as good at holding on to it so that they can sort of follow through with what's being asked of them. The, the, the other big piece of the conversation, because often by the time they get to me, they, they probably need medication, is what medication does and what it doesn't do. So, you know, medication is not going to make your child want to make the right decision. Medication is going to give your child more time to weigh the pros and cons and think about their decision, but it's not going to make the decision for them. And so we still have to have things in place that reinforce positive decisions and that de-incentivize the ones that we don't want them to make. And, you know, there's a reason that so many of the kids we see with ADHD, ODD diagnoses when they come in, the ADHD is treated, the ODD magically goes away. It's because they weren't ODD to begin with, but it was their ADHD symptoms that were getting in the way of them being able to interact with adults and follow what they were asking of them and all of those things. And as a follow-up, one of the things that you seem to be hinting at is this idea of setting up the right structure so that they're making the right decisions. And it sounds like this is uh, a little bit of the behavioral therapy that one could recommend with or without medication. Is is that correct? And and what are some of those behavioral interventions that we can encourage parents to pursue? So one of the simplest things, and it sounds so simple that you would be like, how big a difference can that actually make? But it's huge, is just talking to parents about how to give directions to their kids. That if Jane has ADHD yelling at her in her room, when you don't know if Jane is paying attention to you or Minecraft, is not going to be a good way to get her to do what you're asking of her. So emphasizing the importance of making eye contact with the child, having them standing in front of you when you're telling them to do something, making sure they understand what it is and they repeat it back to you. For a lot of families, that is enough uh, to get things you know, functional at home. They may still need something at school, uh, but that can make a big difference. And the other thing is helping families understand the role of structure. So, you know, the medicine helps with attention and hyperactivity, but what we see with ADHD as well are executive functioning problems. So issues with 
sort of organization and keeping up with things and knowing how to prioritize and figuring out what's next. And so it's really critical for parents to help them with organization, with prioritization, with having systems that help give them that order that their brain has a harder time sort of imposing on the world around them. So you're, you're saying that you have these behavioral interventions that they may be able to do at home. Are, are these things that can be instituted at schools or is what you sort of alluded to, it may, it may also not be possible. Is that correct? These absolutely can be done at schools. It's, it's a matter of whether the school is going to do it or not, but, but it can be done. And, and I will say that, you know, IEPs and going through the special education process are one way to get the child those accommodations potentially. But sometimes schools are willing to do some of these things without you going through that entire process. So if you have a school that's willing to work with you, you can work on those things, even apart from sort of starting this long process and all these meetings and, and all these evaluations. And so if they'll work with you, that's that's great. But if they won't, having an individualized education plan does give the family some rights legally around getting what they need so that that child can benefit from the free appropriate public education that they're entitled to in public school systems. And so it sounds like there are a lot of different types of behavioral interventions. Is is there a, a resource or a book, especially as a pediatrician, I'm, I'm talking to a parent of a, a child who might have some very mild symptoms and I want to try these. Is there a resource that I can, or a website I can, I can share with them? Or is there a place that I, I myself can learn about some of these in more detail? So when it comes to stuff in school and educational rights, uh, the Rights Law website is a great resource for parents around those things. When it comes to sort of some of the behavioral things at home, your basic antecedents, behavior, consequences, structure, schedules, again, it sounds so simple, but for kids with ADHD, it's a big deal, can be really important. The other thing I'll emphasize too is that ADHD has around a 70% heritability. So your parents may need some more help with structuring things and with thinking these things through and with, you know, being handed pieces of paper instead of you just spouting off things, you know, verbally to them in the appointment as well. And that's, that's something else to keep in mind. I had another question just to, before we move on, there have been studies that have shown that people diagnose ADHD more often in boys than in girls. I'm using the social definition of boys and girls here. And so, you know, what's up with that? Is that they present differently or that we're perceiving things differently? Like in your experience, can you explain that difference? So it's, it, I think it sort of gets back to sort of what's permitted in terms of how people express themselves and how they operate by gender in the broader society. And there are certain behaviors that we reinforce in boys in ways that we don't reinforce them in girls. And so I think there could be some things that are more externalizing or more hyperactive that, you know, may be ADHD, may not be ADHD, but there's a certain, there's a greater permission society has for a boy that is loud and interrupts people than it has for girls who are loud and interrupt people. Right. And so I think that does, you know, play into some of the things that are symptoms that we perceive as symptoms when it comes to ADHD. We also know that a lot of times girls may fall under the radar. And I think a piece of that is they may be clamping down on some of those things that are going to have those negative social consequences, uh, but they're quietly sort of inattentive and struggling in school and not able to sort of figure things out. And so because they're not 
disrupting the life of the lives of the adults around them in the same way uh, they don't get identified, right? Because you know a difference with children versus adults in psych clinics is the kids, some adult around them had to be bothered enough to bring them in for the appointment. And so there's definitely a bias in child psychiatry clinics for things that are externalizing or things that have acting out behaviors associated with them because adults, it's easier for them to notice. And it also like bothers the adults more and the adults are the decision makers and the sort of gatekeepers for mental health treatment access interactions with, with providers. That's helpful. Thanks. Hello, I'm Dr. Julie Brown. Do you want to know more about anaphylaxis? Remember these pearls. Respect erythroderma as much as hives as a sign of anaphylaxis and a potential harbinger of worse things to come. Keep your patients supine if they have severe anaphylaxis to optimize circulation and prevent adverse outcomes. And remember, epinephrine is a wonder drug. Early treatment improves outcomes, and parents should have a low threshold for using their auto-injector, even if they don't meet all the criteria for anaphylaxis. To learn more, join me for Crib Cider's episode on anaphylaxis. Yeah, I would love to know about non-pharmacological treatments. So there's behavior and then there's medication, which we'll talk about. But what are some other things? I um, mean, you know, the AAP clinical guidelines mention these small studies about things like mindfulness or CBT, diet, biofeedback, CBD oil. And I feel like these things probably appeal a lot to parents who want to be, you know, holistic with their children. And so, you know, as somebody who sees ADHD a lot, do these have any effect? So CBD oil, not so much, but certainly... Low iron levels have been associated with ADHD symptoms. I am very proactive about treating sleep because if you're not resting, as adults, we have more ADHD type symptoms. You can imagine what that's like for a kid. So making sure that they're actually sleeping well is huge. And that often morphs into a conversation about laptop turn-in times, screen turn-in times, phone curfews, those sorts of things. You know, it's, it's it's always interesting in a clinic when I bring up sleep and screens and the child's like, oh, I'm not on my phone late at night. And I'm like, okay, so it's not a problem if your mom takes it at nine. No, 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 right? And so, you know, they're a kid. They're not on call. They don't need their phone at two in the morning. Like, <laughs> take it, right? And so things like sleep hygiene, making sure they're adequately rested. If there's a uh, concern about vitamin deficiencies or iron deficiency, I'm looking at that, treating that are, are sort of low-hanging fruit for, for, for those sorts of things. And I think we talked about this, but expectations and framing and consistency in parenting are really important as well. And sometimes it's hard to replicate that or make sure that it's happening in the school environment. But kids really do respond to structure, clarity of expectations, positive reinforcement. Uh, so when families are able to, to do that, that's really helpful too. I know we've had a couple of kids at Cash Life Memorial who presented with ADHD-like symptoms and sleep apnea was an ultimate diagnosis to your point of sleep. And that, that's something that I just, I just has always stuck with me now is... Yeah, sleep is huge. And we spend a lot of time talking about about sleep and, and sleep hygiene and whether the child feels rested and all those things. And again, it sounds like one of those things that's really simple, but it makes a huge difference. So in treating a patient, so our patient, Jordan, we have done a great job of identifying that he has great social support. He is set up with whatever resources he needs, though we feel confidently that he ha meets the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. In addition to the behavioral interventions, we've come to a decision that we're going to start pharmacotherapy. 
the list of medications, it is overwhelming for me and especially Chris. And just there's, uh, so that was a joke, Chris, Chris is at Spence. Sorry. Um, there's a lot of different medications that seem to have a different formulation of short-term versus long-term. Can you break it down for a simple person like me? What am I doing first line? How am I managing this in the primary care office? And how much can I really do without, you know, needing to have them go to a consultant or specialist if, if I feel comfortable? What, what are the basic first line things that, that a simple primary care doctor such as myself could do? So the, the list looks overwhelming, but at the end of the day, it's really methylphenidates, amphetamines, and alpha-2 agonists. They all fall into one of those three categories. Let's st start with that. So what, what I suggest to pediatricians is that you get a couple of methylphenidates you feel comfortable with, get a couple of amphetamines you'll, you feel comfortable with that are also covered by the formularies of the insurers you deal with the most, Right. Just start whatever is preferred for the formularies that are most common in your clinic, learn those drugs. Because again, amphetamines, methylphenidates, alpha-2 agonists, it's one of those three. Typically, I will start with a stimulant because the effect sizes for treating ADHD symptoms are better for stimulants compared to the alpha-2 agonists. If you have issues with tolerance because of appetite, suppression, or poor sleep, then your alpha-2 agonists would be uh, better medication choices. In younger kids, I tend to start with shorter acting because I may have to play around with the dose a little bit more. But once I get a sense of what dose they need, switch to a longer acting so they can just take it and be covered for school all day. But most of the time, if it's straight ADHD, they're going to respond to the first or the second medication. So don't stress out about that long, long list and think you're doing your kids a disservice. Just know a couple of amphetamines couple of methylphenidates and you're off to agonists and you'll be able to serve most of the kids in your clinic just fine. So the first question I usually get from parents who don't know much about ADHD is I want to give a stimulant and they're like, my kid's bouncing off the wall. Why do you want to give them a stimulant? Can you explain that a little bit? And so part of the problem with ADHD is that it's, it's kind of a misnomer, right? It's not that they have a deficit of attention. It's that their attention is all over the place and it's not appropriately focused. So it's almost as if they have too much attention because they're paying attention to Miss Smith and to Susie and to Timmy and to the bird outside the window, right? So you're trying to get them to focus in. And for the way that their brain works, for the dopaminergic tone in their brain, this puts them more in line with what you would need them to do to be able to focus that a, a more typical kid their age would be able to. And so you know, attention deficit is is sort of a, like I said, it's sort of a misnomer, so it can make it a little bit confusing. But for their brain, it's actually going to help them focus better uh, because their attention is there. It's just all spread over the place. And so as far as a general strategy for treatment, if I may, selfishly, so that I can get feedback, what I have typically done would love feedback if this is the right thing to do. For most of them, I will start on a methylphenidate that is long acting once in the morning, see how it does. We can titrate the dose a little bit. And if they say, you know, Dr. Justin, this works great, but at 1 or 2 p.m. it's starting to wear off, then I'll supplement with a shorter term. But that is the extent of I feel comfortable with. But is that a reasonable strategy? Is that what we should be doing, essentially? Yeah, for a lot of kids, that is going to be just fine. Now, with younger kids, you know, in that I think we said Jordan was six, six yes. or seven. Yeah. So, so that's the age where I may not start off with, a long acting That's right true. away. But certainly if we're talking about nine, 10 teenagers, then you, you think about that. If, if the child is really anxious 
or the parent is really anxious, then sometimes I'll start with a shorter acting just so that I can reassure them it's going to be gone in three hours or it's going to be gone, right? And so I can sort of head off some of the anxiety around taking medication by starting with a short acting and explaining that to them. But, you know, long acting, especially if you're trying to get through a school day, is the preferred method once you realize sort of what a child needs. You know, the other thing that we have to keep in mind with with dosing is that there's a lot of variability around how much support kids have in school for taking medication. So I have some families where, you know, they're at school where they don't even have a full-time school nurse. So thinking about trying to dose at school is not very feasible. I have some families where mom might be working overnights and she doesn't get home till 10 in the morning. So dosing at school is actually the preferred option for them uh, because they're going to be able to more consistently get it there. So even when it comes to medication doses, we have to look at that child in the context of their family and in the context of their school environment and figure out sort of what's the best place for them to consistently get uh, what they need. And when would you switch from a methylphenidate to a methamphetamine? So I will typically start with methylphenidates because there's some evidence they may be a, a bit better tolerated. But if the methylphenidate isn't getting me what I want at a higher dose, then I'll think about an amphetamine at that point. The, the other thing I'll say too is that, you know, these medicines work and we don't have studies that say, you know, this one is so much better than the other stimulants. And so part of prescribing, particularly psychic medications, is getting buy-in, right? So if mom is completely convinced that brand name X methylphenidate is going to work for Timmy because Timmy's cousin was on brand name X methylphenidate and their insurance will cover brand name X methylphenidate, by all means, I will prescribe you brand name X methylphenidate. So that's the other thing to keep in mind too. Or if they're convinced that like brand name X methylphenidate made my cousin psychotic, we will stay away from that one. I'm not going to argue with you about, we'll take that second sort of stimulant in our toolkit and we'll give them that one instead. Are there other nuances that we have to worry about when we're prescribing medications or other hurdles that we have to consider? What are some of the common hurdles that you often come across? Some of the other things you run into, you know, certainly the appetite suppression is a common side effect. Everyone doesn't get it, but it's common. And so I always have a conversation and I'm sure pediatricians are better at this and psychiatrists as a whole with parents and families about what they're eating for breakfast um, and about the need that they like actually have a real breakfast, you know, toaster strudel, ramen noodles. We're not counting that. Like I need something that's more, you know, robust and has some protein and, you know, all those things. So I proactively talk to them about, you know, their appetite may go down at lunch. I'm less concerned about when they get their calories as long as they get them, right? So having conversations with families about breakfast, having conversations with them about, I know family dinner time is at five, but Lauren may need to eat a little bit later because if her medicine is still suppressing her appetite at five, she's not going to eat. So, you know, let her be special in this way because of the medicine. So I really talk a lot about the, the, the food and then give them a heads up about sleep. Because what we can see with ADHD medication, well, particularly the stimulants, is that the side effects may hang around longer than the effects that we want. So even though they can tell at three o'clock that medicine is not helping with his hyperactivity anymore, at eight o'clock, it still may be impacting his sleep. So making sure that, you know, parents are monitoring that and that you're following up about how their sleep is doing when you, when you make any changes with, with stimulant medications. So when you're having a sleep issue, would you consider switching to a, a different type of medication, which may be shorter acting in terms of the side effect? Or is that how you would mostly approach something like that other than 
you know, maybe some other behavioral or changes in terms of their environment? Yeah. So if it's a new sleep issue, because a lot of these kids have sleep issues, you know, at, at the beginning, but if it's a new sleep issue, then definitely think about uh, a shorter acting or sort of a mid-range medication instead. Now, going back to the nutrition you were talking about, one thing as a pediatrician I do every time, especially when I'm starting someone on on a, uh, a medication or I've changed a dose is we're constantly, you know, every time they come back, we're weighing them, we're asking them about food. Is there a point, a threshold in which, you know, they're not gaining weight like they're supposed to, they're falling off the curve or that you would start saying, well, maybe we should start switching. And how would you, I guess, then how would you approach it? Would you switch them to another medicine? Would you start thinking about Menalpha 2 or something else like that? So it really depends on how impairing their ADHD symptoms are, right? So if this kid is at risk of being suspended completely falling behind, you know, maybe we don't think about taking away their stimulant. Maybe we think about what are their preferred foods and making sure that their preferred foods are in the house. And maybe you get a milkshake on the way home from like, like maybe we work around it and keep them with that medicine. If it's making a really big difference in terms of how they're doing functionally, if it's not making as big of a difference in how they're doing functionally, and maybe they'll be okay with an alpha two agonist. And maybe that's the move I make instead. But again, like as a child psychiatrist, a lot of times the kids who get to me, they might really need to be on that medication. And so it's a matter of us thinking about other ways to get calories into that kid and, 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 and sort of mitigate that side effect. But if we can't, you know, then by all means, we may think about a shorter acting or we may um, end up going to an alpha-2. Can we get a quick example of an alpha-2? Adamectatine? So adamectatine is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Oh, my God. Um, I'm lost. I thought I, I thought I was so, finally getting it. I thought I was getting so, it. So, so guanfacine. I always forget what the what the, the brand generic, generic yeah. is. So, so guanfacine and clonidine are your alpha two agonists. So, so those are your your alpha twos. That makes sense. Now, your short acting alpha twos are off label for ADHD treatment. Your long acting alpha twos are not. That has more to do with the short acting ones being old. So there was no financial incentive for any insurance company to get the FDA approval for them. Whereas the long acting ones are newer and on patent. So there is a financial incentive to do the studies and get the FDA label. So just so you know, you are going off label, but you're still within evidence base if you use a short acting alpha 2, which is normally if you have a kid on public insurance, what you end up having to give them. And so adamectatine, is that one that I should leave for the psychiatrist or is that, that's like our fourth line? Yeah, yeah. And so it's it ends up category wise being a third line medication because it doesn't work as well and it takes longer to work. This is great. That that one sucks. Right. <laughs> and so it, it ends up being the medicine that you use only if the other two, you know, just don't work because it yeah. literally takes weeks uh to kick in and then it's not as effective. This is great. One question I have about adamoxetine is I, I use it sometimes in my adults, especially those of history of use disorder. And I was wondering, like, definitely we see this in maybe our adolescent population as well. Is that a similar case scenario in which you may consider that as an earlier line therapy? The effect size is so much better with stimulants. I really see it as doing people a disservice not to give them the best drug for their condition if you can do so safely. So even if I'm concerned about that, that's not going to be my first sort of approach. And there, I know we're trying to, we're staying away from, from brands, but there are medications that are less likely to be abused. So the, met, the amphetamines compared to the methylphenidates are more likely to be abused. Short acting compared to long acting, 
are more likely to be abused. There are medications with formulations that require passage through the GI tract in order for them to be active. So if you're doing things like crushing it up and snorting it or shooting it up, you won't get high from it. So you have things that you can do within stimulants to decrease the chance of of abuse. And what we know is that untreated ADHD is a risk factor for substance use disorders. And so we want to make sure we're adequately treating their ADHD because this is a a risk factor that is within our power to to address. And so unless they've abused stimulant medications before, I will still try to do that. And it may look like, you know, a family member holds it, right? Because most people, if they have ADHD and they're using a stimulant medication at the dose it's prescribed in the way it's prescribed, right? So if you're crushing it up and snorting it, that's like another ballgame. But if you're taking the prescribed amount, you're not going to get a buzz. It's not going to have enough dopaminergic effect to be positively reinforcing in the way that things need to be in order to be addictive in that way. And so it becomes a problem when they're taking too much or they're taking it in a different way. But if they're taking it the way you prescribe, it's, it's not going to have that same uh, risk. Thank you. Are there other things that we need to monitor a patient for as we continue to treat them? Other than obviously monitoring whether their ADHD symptoms are improving, are there other things that we need to be aware of? So something that's really, really important is following up if there are concerns about learning or if there are concerns about intellectual disability. Because sometimes what can happen is once children aren't behavioral problems anymore, they can fall off the radar. So if they're quietly getting like C's and D's, while they have some unaddressed reading disorder, then they can sort of get pushed through the system and not get the supports that they need. So it's really important to follow up on how they're doing academically, on what they're understanding in class, on what they're not understanding in class, and where their special education process is, if that's a relevant issue for that child, and making sure that doesn't fall off the radar just because he's not getting suspended or expelled all the time anymore. It's sort of like a, almost a diagnostic anchoring bias, like, oh yeah, their issue is ADHD. So they keep on having issues to either continue to treat that or, and not, not pay attention to anything else. Is that what you're basically trying to say? Yeah. And you know, it's really easy for, oh, their Vanderbilt looks better. They're not getting in trouble anymore. The adults are happy, but the kid still isn't reading on grade level and there hasn't been an intervention. Right. So really following up with that, because I see that. And, and that is something I try to really actively work against is that, you know, once it's not inconveniencing the adults anymore, that the kids' other sort of quieter issues that are going to be more impairing long-term quite potentially fly under the radar. Now, as we treat our ADHD and maybe uncover other learning disabilities, do we ever worry about, uh, do you ever see like uncovering of like other mood disorders? Absolutely. And so, especially if you have a, teenage girl with sudden onset ADHD, you really want to think about depression and anxiety because we know that those can impact concentration. People can fidget as a result of being anxious. You may have agitated depressions. So that's why that psych review of systems is so symptoms is so important. And, and, and there's a way too that being a child with untreated ADHD or even with, or even with treated ADHD, but that is still impairing, makes life more stressful for you. 
adults are yelling at you all the time. You're getting into trouble. You're not getting your work done the way your other classmates are. You're interrupting so the other kids don't like you as much. So it's it can be a stressful life to have this disorder. And so we know that stress increases risk for things like anxiety and depression. So there are times where you can see those ADHD symptoms are playing into these other disorders as well. So my, my next question is, often when I'm treating adults with ADHD, I, as you say, there's a lot of comorbid um, depression, anxiety. Is there, I, I've always been taught to, tr- I need to treat the mood disorders or make sure that I'm addressing them at least at the same time as the ADHD. Is, is, this, is this a correct way of doing this? Do I need to make sure their anxiety is better controlled before I start their medicines or is this not like a thing? Well, they might be anxious because they're operating in the world or trying to operate in the world and their brain can't pay attention in a way that allows them to do it well, right? So it may be that once they feel more capable and they are more capable, that the anxiety starts to abate and maybe they don't need fluoxetine on top of their ADHD medication. And so again, it sort of comes back to function. In this visit, in this moment, what is the thing that is more impairing for them? What seems to be the thing that's driving this for them? And it may be that they say, I don't like the idea of being on a stimulant, but I'm really depressed and these things are happening. And so they're much more amenable to bupropion than they would be to an amphetamine or a methylphenidate, right? And so I always start with function, like what, what's the big driver here? And then look at sort of what they're open to doing and what they see as the biggest issue. Because it may be that, you know, I, as the provider, say, you not completing your schoolwork is is the big thing, or you not keeping up at, at your job if you're an adult is the big thing. And they may say, you know, my lack of sex, sex drive is the big thing, right? So you're going to have different approaches depending on what is most pertinent to that patient. And, you know, what I talk to my trainees about all the time is the best treatment plan is the one that is medically indicated, but that the patient is able and willing to follow. And so you always want to get their buy-in and their understanding and, and their sense of what the actual problem is, because sometimes it's not the same as ours. Oh, that's a great, great pearl. Yeah, I love that. That, that We can use that as a standalone soundbite. <laughs> I think this is great because I think we're talking about a lot of the challenges in what comes with young adults and adults that have ADHD. And so I'd love to transition to talk a little bit about how the diagnosis and treatment is a little bit different for young adults. And so maybe Angela, can you can you walk us through our next patient? Sure. Yeah. So after that long visit, your next patient is Miles and Miles uses they them. So they have no significant medical issues, but they do say they have trouble concentrating, trying to go back to school, but they're finding it hard to study for tests. They say this has really been an issue all their life, but doctors and teachers never really address it with them. So what happens when you do miss his diagnosis in childhood? And then is the treatment that you consider any different because Miles is an adult? Yeah. And so we would still have stimulants as the first line treatment. We would still think about organizational things and measures to help with, you know, executive functioning problems. You know, once you get to adulthood, you got to have things like automatic bill pay, right? It's really important for for adults with ADHD. (laughs) And so, you know, the, the functional impairment looks different because adulting looks different than being a kid, right? And so the, the behavioral things to address that functional impairment are going to be developmentally appropriate. And so it is different in that way, but in terms of providing structure, in terms of sort of proactively planning for this difficulty with planning, it's it's similar in, in those ways. What I see with college students or some of my college students who have been treated for the first time is that they had symptoms, 
but they may have had parents who did a lot of that planning for them, who may have done some homework for them. And, and so what happens once they are left with trying to come up with structure on their own, or what happens when they have too much work now to cram and it not catch up with them, then it becomes a functional problem in a way that it might not have become before. So if you're a bright kid and you can wait until the night before the exam to study every time and it's fine, that may not work once you get to college or med school or grad school or that sort of thing. So you can have people who are diagnosed later because functionally they're okay because they sort of have some some hedge in, in other ways that allow them to get by. And I have a quick question that I bet some of our listeners are having, because I know I am in my head as far as losing things, not able to keep up with stuff, paying attention to the bird in the window rather than class. Do I have ADHD? You know, I think like a lot of, of, of individuals say, I think I must have ADHD because I can't focus on one thing. And so especially in the young adults who are struggling through college or struggling through studying, how can we help kind of tease that out again to see if this is a diagnosis that needs treatment or if this is a struggle of adulthood that I'm still going through? Sure. So, you know, the big thing is functional impairment. So how is this getting in your way? How would your life be different? Does the physics professor say this homework should take two hours and it's taking you six? Or do they say it should take two hours and it takes you two, but it's just a really crappy two hours and you don't like it. So you'd rather, you know, get on Instagram, right? So there are questions around how much is this getting in your way versus maybe this not being a good match. But something you can see with college students is that, you know, they may be in majors that people feel like they're supposed to be in, but there are things that really aren't of interest to them. And it can be really hard to study for long periods of time about things that aren't of interest to you, especially when you don't have the same sort of structure for studying that you had once you were in high school. And so it gets to, does your ADHD only kick in when you're studying organic chemistry or does it also kick in when you're trying to like do other things too? And so looking for the, the common threads and sort of universality of, of the ADHD symptoms in other places. So, so one thing I've, I've, I've heard, and this is part of my practice, I'm, I'm asking for permission whether, <laughs> whether this is an, an, an appropriate way to go about this is yeah, I definitely have some of my young adults and my, my even older adults come to me and say, I think I've always had ADHD and it's affecting my work or my, 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 my grad school or whatnot. I, I go through a couple of different steps. I, I, I don't have Vanderbilts, but I, I often use the, the adult ADHD self-report scale sort of to help me as a, as a guide in terms of knowing symptoms. And then I often may ask spouses or I'll even ask them, like, if they're younger, I was like, can I talk to your mom on the phone? And just sort of looking at the different environments that they might have symptoms. Is, is this an, uh, an appropriate way to, to looking at these later diagnoses? That's absolutely right. And a lot of times for people with adult ADHD, partners, family members are really important. I mean, with kids, you sort of default to asking their family because their family had to bring them in. But it's it matters for adults, too. And what we find is the studies that look at, you know, does ADHD persist into adulthood? If you just ask the the patient, the number isn't nearly as high as if you ask the people around the patient that are part of their life. Right, because they're still noticing things that, you know, the, the patients sort of had this brain their whole life, so they may not even pick up on it. But that is absolutely the right approach in looking at the, you know, adult ADHD rating scales. And there should be, if it's truly ADHD, there should be symptoms going back. 
they may not have been as impairing, but there should be symptoms going back. So you do want to get that retrospective history. The other thing I'll I'll add is that there are adult ADHD adult ADHD workbooks that can be really helpful. And part of the work with those workbooks is engaging a spouse or a partner for that accountability and that structure and, and helping people with those things. So great job. <laughs> I'm glad I've been doing it right. <laughs> Angela, you want to follow up on our case? Yeah. So one thing that we should mention about Miles is that they're Black. Usually, so I do want to say we do not use race in a one-liner about a patient. And that's because race is socially and politically defined. So that means that the definitions of race are not consistent and definitely not biological or genetic. Often it's also used as a proxy for something else like skin color, class, toxin exposure, stress from racism. But in this case, it is something relevant that we want to explore further. So there's a lot of inequity when it comes to ADHD treatment and diagnosis in kids of color. So Studies suggest that Chinese kids are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, and it's very well studied that black and brown kids are somehow both under and overdiagnosed. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. And so, you know, what we see is that there are ways that medicine and psychiatry have been used to sort of perpetuate extant social hierarchies, right? And the people who make the rules, the people who write the diagnostic criteria, a lot of times the people who are administering the diagnostic criteria are people who are in certain, you know, parts of this social hierarchy. And so, you know, medicine is certainly not colorblind, but we act as if it is and that the patients are the ones who have like the culture and medicine doesn't have a culture, but medicine absolutely has a culture. It is I, the doctor, tell you, the patient and the family, what is wrong with you and what you need to do to get better, right? The culture of medicine doesn't lend itself to our taking a step back and saying, maybe for Miles, the teacher is less tolerant of some typical behaviors because they're more likely to pathologize him because we live in a society that primes people to associate Black with bad. And maybe what he needs is more school supports, or maybe we need to think about how else he navigates that class. And maybe what the mom is telling us about her experiences at school are actually valid and not mom being unreasonable about what's, what's occurring there. And so children's mental health symptoms happen in the context of their lives, and their lives happen in the context of their families, and their families are in the context of the larger society. So you're absolutely right. Race is not a biological uh, construct, and we need to make sure that we're not practicing biological determinism and some of the things that we have done in medicine that have been part of the problem. But we also can't ignore what it means to be a Black boy in America and how that may be playing into what happens. And, and part of what I end up talking to parents about, especially in my public sector clinic, where they're in neighborhoods that are over-policed, where the same behaviors I see in my private practice clinic that none of the kids get arrested for, the kids in my public sector clinic are doing the same thing, but they do. You know, part of my informed consent process is about what I alluded to earlier around the risk of not treating. It is not fair, but the reality is society has less room for error for your boy than it does for other kids. And so we can't afford to have him not graduate high school because if you're a black boy, you don't graduate high school, there's a 60% chance you're going to be arrested and incarcerated. And it's not fair, but we have to be really proactive about doing what we can to protect you and think about sort of what the broader implications are of, of your child going untreated and going through a system that's not serving him well with these symptoms that we actually have 
some ability to address. And, and it may be that, you know, the reluctance to doing it could be any number of things. So, you know, another thing that I see come up a lot, and you can see this in other communities too, is the fear of becoming dependent on substances. There was, I didn't see substance use disorders actually get treatment until I was a medical student. For the people who don't know or haven't figured out, I'm Black. But growing up, the people who I knew with substance use disorders, like they went to jail. Like it wasn't this medical condition that people got treatment for and got better on the other side of it. Like it was this thing that was sort of a life sentence in its own way, right? And so the fear of addiction, the fear of being on something that is habit forming uh, may look different in, in a different community because of the realities of accessing treatment and structural racism inherent in, in treating substance use disorders and the stigma that goes with that. And so, you know, it's really important not to assume that if the family is resistant, that it's just because, you know, minority people have stigma, but to ask questions about what they're concerned about and then provide psychoeducation around how you can mitigate that risk or why that risk isn't as big of an issue. I really love the way you talk about this. And this is one of the reasons that we were so excited to interview you is you know, it's not a new issue, certainly. And this goes back to your book recommendation, actually. But, you know, anti-racism is like the word of the year, right? And everyone is being anti-racist. And we're all talking about social racism and an unconscious bias and all of this stuff. But I think a lot of it disappears when we are faced with an actual patient. And the advice that we thought we would take or the lessons we thought we learned, we don't do them. And so I'm wondering how we as clinicians can really integrate the knowledge about social racism and skills to be anti-racist, knowing it's a lifelong journey, maybe specifically into our practice around ADHD. Sure. So we know that it is really easy to fall back on our biases. So if we are burned out, if we are not in a good place, that's going to rear its head more. So self-care is important when it comes to these, these issues. The, the other thing that... I would challenge people to do is to sort of acknowledge what their bias is and look for information that goes against it, right? So if I assume that you just like basketball, maybe I ask you about anime or Fortnite or other things that sort of round out who you are as a person that don't fit you into this, this peg. And, and then on a sort of bigger practice level, you know, I would encourage people to look at what happens in their clinic? Are more of your Black boys being diagnosed with ODD and more of your white boys being diagnosed with ADHD when you go back and you look at your charts? Are you going back and looking at your charts and seeing if that's happening? Is your clinic or your hospital system that says we're being anti-racist actually looking at you know, things along those numbers? And if they're not, when you're in meetings or you're having discussions about this, that you don't let them off the hook with having their annual diversity day grand rounds, but that you actually challenge them to measure and look at things and then do things to fix them. I think this is amazing. I think it's something we should do. Is, you know, Every residency program should be doing this as a QI project who's trying to find ways to, to be more involved in this. Is there evidence to support this? I, I assume that there is, but is there a association between the diagnosis and the socially constructed race of the patient? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So what we see is that the diagnoses that are more negative, ODD, conduct disorder, are more likely to be attached to, to Black kids, whereas, you know, mood disorders, maybe even ADHD are more likely to be attached to non-Black kids or non-Hispanic kids. And so, and it's, and it's part of that same narrative, right? Like, 
if you're bad, if you're delinquent, if you're these things, then this diagnosis seems to fit better. The other big piece of that is the way that our society understands and thinks about the pain of marginalized groups, right? So it's, it's very easy for me to say, you're talking back to your teacher, check ODD. It's harder for me to think about the fact that maybe your teacher is treating you differently. And how do I examine that? And maybe your school isn't addressing your reading disability and you're frustrated in class and that's why you're acting out. And, and sometimes it's harder for this kid to tell you this, right? So if you're supposed to do what adults say, but adults are not helping you, adults aren't there for you, adults aren't advocating for you, they may come into the pediatrician's office or the family medicine doctor's office and not expect you to advocate for them either, not expect you to listen to them either. And so some of the things that have to do with like depression, anxiety, learning issues require a certain level of trust that the child is able to confide and talk to you about these things, whereas some of the other diagnoses don't. And bridging that gap or having that trust may be harder in, in dyads where there's that gap. Do you find ways to ask patients about how their race affects their experience? Yeah. And so, you know, there are ways that it may come up naturally. It's not uncommon that they talk about how the teacher's treating them or with my adult patients, how they're being treated at work. And I'll ask them, do you think this has anything to do with it? Like, what's the makeup of the people around you? What's it like to be the only Black person? Or what's it like to be, right, the only whatever, fill in the blank in the, in the boardroom and, and say something and nobody listens to you. And then somebody says the same thing you said, and all of a sudden, everybody's paying attention to that same idea. So it, it definitely is something that we discuss, but it ends up coming up as part of their experience of navigating sort of through life. And I ask them about sort of what they, they think things are connected to. But it can be important and it's okay to ask if they think that that's a factor because especially if you're talking to a person who's not, I don't know if there are studies on this in primary care, but certainly in psychiatry and mental health, there are times where patients may think or assume that a doctor who looks like them understands things about them that they actually don't necessarily understand because their experiences are still quite different. And so they may sort of use a shorthand that results in you not understanding what's going on either. Uh, so it always comes back to, to being curious, asking the patient about what's happening, getting them to explain things, and, and seeing sort of why they think things are happening to them. And as a learner, that's like a real, that's a really awesome and helpful thing for me to hear, because I think you're totally right. We don't want to practice colorblind medicine because society is not. And how do we acknowledge racism in medicine versus attributing something to biological race? So I definitely think I would love to build skills to ask about race in a, a trauma-informed way for my patient. And so I really love that. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the colorblind thing, so, you know, and I remember when I was in training, I did my general psych training at Cambridge Health Alliance. And one of the, the folks there talked about, well, you know, I'm colorblind, so we don't really need to discuss these things. And my response was, when I hear a white person say they're colorblind, what I hear you saying is you assume all people are like white people. Unless you have made it a point to learn about other people's experiences, you don't know what it's like. There's, there's a certain way that people of color in this country have to sort of understand white people in order to advance, right? So we have to be bicultural either way, because white people run everything. But if you're a white person saying that, like, I don't think you actually know, and you're just sort of treating white as the normal, which is a form of sort of supremacy and stratification in and of itself. 
And you're, you're a forensic psychiatrist, and maybe in like one minute, I would like love to hear about how you see this play out in the justice system in your work with the courts. Absolutely. So that issue of society having less room for error for certain people, when these diagnoses are not treated, and it results in behavior that is differentially criminalized, that can lead to this trajectory of juvenile justice and adult system, adult system problems. The, the other way that it becomes a problem if we just say ADHD, ODD, and don't diagnose the PTSD, anxiety, depression, is in the adult system, that ODD conduct disorder is seen as a precursor for antisocial personality disorder. And nobody's paying attention to the fact that this kid went to six different placements between middle school and high school and that this was a lot of trauma. And so the way that that chart reads, if it's, AD, if it's ODD conduct disorder versus PTSD depression to a prosecutor, to a judge, to an evaluator, absolutely has implications for how the court system treats them. So if you are working in communities that are overpoliced, that are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, it doesn't ha- just have implications for treatment. It can actually truly have implications for what happens to them if they ever get into trouble with the, the legal system too. I've been loving this conversation. So so my, the one question I usually ask at the end is, what, what is your thoughts on uh, the treatment of ADHD in the future? Are there any drugs or medications or other treatments that you think are promising? What, what is your outlook on ADHD and its management in the future? Hmm. I don't know of anything that is really novel in the pipeline in terms of ADHD treatment. Like it, it's actually a, out of all the psych disorders, like the stuff we have actually works pretty well compared to some of the other stuff and is, and is usually pretty well tolerated. You know, a lot of times when you hear, oh, new ADHD medicine, really, they just reformulated something, you know, like now there's the medicine you can take at night and it doesn't kick in until the morning. And that's the new the new thing, right? All they did was put a coat around an old medicine <laughs> that takes eight hours to come off. So it doesn't kick in until the morning time. So, you know, don't believe the hype. This is great. We've talked about a lot today. We've, we've talked about diagnosis and treatment in children. We've talked about diagnosis and treatment in adults. We've talked about a lot of the social and other disparities that go along with the diagnosis. For all our learners and listeners, what are some key take-home points that you want to make sure listeners go home with about anything that we talked about today? So the big thing is the the patient is the expert, the parents are the expert. Uh, so we have what what knowledge we can offer to them, but but realizing the answer is is always with them, both in terms of diagnosis and, and with treatment around the approach that you should take. I'll go back to all that fidgets is not ADHD. So all that Vanderbilt tells you is that they have ADHD symptoms. It doesn't tell you what those ADHD symptoms are attributable to. And so that psych review of symptoms is always really, really important, even if it seems like a slam dunk. And the third thing I'll I'll reemphasize is following up about learning issues, because once they're not a problem for adults anymore, sometimes those things can fly under the radar. And in terms of long-term trajectory, which I know you all are invested in, your patient's best long-term trajectory, addressing those things is going to be really important too. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Anything, uh, anything that you'd like to plug, any resources that you'd like to share with our, our audience or anything? Yeah, anything you'd like to plug? For people who aren't, and, I, and I'm not just plugging them because they had me do a webinar, you see this before, but Chad and Attitude, I think, are, are good resources for families. I've, I've had magazines in my waiting room and 
little boys with ADHD will be like, can I have this? Because they like see themselves in it and it's not in a way that's pathologizing them or, or getting them into trouble. So just to give a shout out to advocacy communities, parent support groups, things like that, because they really know the system better than physicians do. So in terms of families navigating school systems, behavioral health systems, referrals, don't underestimate the importance of parent peers, youth peers, organizations like NAMI, CHAD, things like that. And that's where I actually heard Dr. Vincent talk for the first time. So I would definitely recommend Attitude. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredible. I learned a lot. I think people are going to love this. I love this. We really appreciate your time and it's been a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and educating us about these topics. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you for having, and thank you to Angela for being persistent because things have been, <laughs> things have been crazy. And I was like, okay, she's, she's going to keep calling me. So let me call her back. So, so thank you. This has been a pleasure. And we're here. Thank you. What a this great message. I love really that. Great. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Sure is. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast. We can sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Angela Zane. Thanks for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I'm Angela Zhang. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. You've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by the BCU Health Continuing Education. BCU Health is jointly accredited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check us out at ce.bcuhealth.org slash cribsiders for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.